This is Easter Sunday. This is the celebration of the cross. I mean, literally, whether you kind of believe the, the story, whether you believe in Jesus in terms of as the Son of God or not, you can't deny that this literally changed history. Like, even the dating of all of our history all comes from this. This is the pivotal moment. There's literally before Christ and after Christ. Literally, this is a dividing line of our history. And so we've kind of been looking at some of those photos of moments that change, that change the world, picture tells a thousand uh, words and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes a thousand words paints a picture as well. And so what we're going to do today is we're just going to explore uh, seven, I guess, seven, I think, different pictures of the cross that we see in the gospel account. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 23, if you've got a Bible with you. If not, it'll be on the screen, don't worry. Uh, seven different pictures of the cross from Luke's gospel. The years AD 33, verse 13, Pilate, who's the Roman governor, calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to, to, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that a demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And so they lead him away and ultimately go and, and fix him to a cross. Jump to verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not fear do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. First thing we see about this in this picture is that this is a picture of stunning integrity. Like, we've known leaders in our world who are mightily impressive. Throughout world history, leaders with incredible courage, like Winston Churchill. Leaders who have inspired through their incredible oratory skills, like uh, Barack Obama, who inspired an entire generation with his message of the audacity of hope. Leaders who have even changed entire nations and the trajectory of a nation, like Nelson Mandela, truly great man. Some of them have not just those, but many others have displayed some remarkable traits, done remarkable things, but none like this. Who is this man who 
says they, who they found in him no guilt deserving death, who gets whipped and beaten and mocked and then nailed to a cross and yet still cries out here, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, even our best of leaders, best leaders in the world, men and women, in the end are just that, mere men and women, whose lives, despite the fact they often do great things, so often don't quite match up. If you just think recently, revelation after revelation of, of people in positions of power who say one thing and do another, except Jesus. This is a man, don't forget, who years before taught his followers, taught his friends that you are to love your enemies and you're to pray for those who persecute you. And then as he's hanging on a cross, as he's being killed, he does just that. He loves his enemies. He prayed for them. And he hung there and he said, this is what I taught and this is what I'll do. God, forgive them. God, I want the best for them despite the fact that they want the worst for me. Who is this most compelling of men? Free from hypocrisy, with absolute integrity. And the moment we see this the most is the moment where we witness his death. I was at an exhibition in a museum once of, of Jesus' life, and it just said, of little tag, it said, Jesus died tragically young. Except if you look a little bit closer, we actually see that this is also a picture, not just of integrity, this is a picture that was actually planned. And it was planned to reveal just who this man of integrity really is. See, there's lots of seemingly insignificant details as we read through the story of him being offered sour wine, of, of uh, soldiers casting lots for his clothes. And they're details that seem insignificant, but they're all included because over a thousand years before, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that these things would happen, that one day a king of Israel would, ha- would be killed, executed, and they would offer him sour wine, and the soldiers would cast lots for his clothes. And here's the thing about Jesus, is it's one thing to try and live your life and try and match it to the details of ancient prophecies, but it's an entirely another thing to be able to make that actually happen. Lying, hanging on a cross, no way you can make hardened soldiers cast lots just because you ask them to. There's no way you can force them to do things just because you ask them to. You just, you might try and line up, match up your life to ancient prophecies, but you just ultimately can't do it. But then you can't do the things that got Jesus hung on the cross either. This is the man who had gone up to a paralyzed man and said, get up and walk. And immediately he did, muscles and tendons and bones suddenly knitted together and in front of watching crowds he gets up and he walks away. This is a man who says be clean to a man suffering from skin disease, a leper, and immediately he is cleansed. This is a man who been in a boat in a storm with experienced fishermen. So bad was the storm that these experienced fishermen who knew what it was to be in storms thought they were going to drown and he says calmly be still and the waters go flat and calm. This is a man who had been led by a 12-year-old little girl's parents into her bedroom where she lay dead. And he says to her, little girl, I say to you, get up. And she does. You see, all of this sounds really rather far-fetched. It kind of sounds impossible because it is. No man could do these things. But the one who created humanity could. And that's the point. These are astonishing miracles, but if Jesus is God himself, then this is exactly what we would expect God to be able to do. This man who prays for his enemies, who fulfills ancient prophecies, who controls the weather, who has power over sickness, he's not just truly good, he's truly God. And he deliberately went to the cross for you 
and for me. And we'll never really make sense of why he deliberately went to the cross for you and me until we see the third picture here, that this is a picture of reality. One of the pictures we looked at earlier was that of Titanic. Now, we've all seen the movie. In case you haven't, it sinks. (laughs) But there's a few very famous scenes. There's a few very famous scenes in the film version of the Titanic. And uh, one of the kind of most poignant, I guess, moments in the film is when the captain, the engineer, and the owner of the boat come together right after they've hit the the iceberg. And they recognize and realize that in a few hours, this ship will sink, that everything here will be at the bottom of the ocean. And right after after that moment, the camera pans back. The director then takes us on this journey of the whole ship, of everybody having a great time, enjoying themselves. The poor people are having a great party down below. And the wealthier ones in all their grandeur and opulence are enjoying life. I'm rich. I'm free. I'm heading to America. Nothing is going to touch me. All completely unaware of the reality that in just a few hours' time, they would be heading to an icy grave. They're about to sink But at that moment, everything just seems great, completely unaware of the reality of what's about to hit them. And watching the film, you have this moment where you think, wow, this this actually happened. Yeah, the film is a bit daft with Leonardo DiCaprio and co, but the story's real. And watching it, you can't help feel pity for the people who lost their lives, like 1,500 of them sunk to their, their death. You see, despite all their wealth, Despite their seemingly perfect lives, the reality was as the ship sunk. And in a moment, the reality of their situation changed and it was laid before them as they descended. The reality of life was laid before them as they descended to their death in the icy waters. Here's the point. You will never understand what Jesus was doing hanging on the cross and why God would have planned for that to happen to his own son unless you begin to understand that we are all living in a titanic situation. We might be going along just pleasantly thinking, everything's great, I'm happy, my life is fine, but I don't, I have everything. Not recognizing that the reality is one day, every single one of us, no matter who we'll face, who we are, will face the same reality. And the truth is, we don't like talking about death. I understand why we don't. And so we pretend it's not there, or we ignore it, or we distort it, or we look for distractions from it. But every now and again, we have to confront the reality of death, and the truth is every single one of us will do at one point. We might hate death, but we can't ignore it. And the truth is, you can have all the riches in the world, all the beauty. You can be a princess like Diana, have everything before you, and yet one day you're going to face this reality. You can have all the intellect in the world, probably one of the smartest men to have ever lived on the planet, and yet, just like Stephen Hawking, one day you will still face the reality of death. We can't ignore the reality of death. And here's the thing, God doesn't either. On that day, there were three men hanging on the cross, and they did not have the reality, the option of ignoring death. It was very, very real to them. And the two men either side of Jesus deal with it very, very differently. One rages against it. Luke 23, verse 39 says, One of the criminals railed at him. He's angry about death. He lashes out at Jesus. He's angry about the whole prospect of death. It's not right. It's not fair. But the other man rebukes him. You see, everyone is snaring at Jesus except This man, he warns the other criminal to fear God instead of raging at him. Somehow he realizes that to criticize Jesus is to criticize God. To mock Jesus is to mock God. And that's somewhat foolish when you're hours away from eternity. And his interaction with Jesus shows us the reality, a picture of the reality. We all face death. But it also shows us 
the fourth picture we see, that this is a picture of hope. You see, this guy, he knows he's done wrong. He knows he's getting the punishment he deserves. And he doesn't blame anyone or anything else. And so he doesn't rage against Jesus, but neither is he resigned to his fate. Instead, he makes a request of Jesus. Verse 42, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He asks, he offers nothing, but he asks for everything. He's guilty and he knows it. And Jesus, in that moment, does something amazing. He offers him hope. He doesn't respond with a, well, prove yourself then. Go and get yourself better. Go and fix yourself up. Go and right all the wrongs. Go and make sure over a period of weeks, months, and years that you can live up to a sufficient standard. And then I'll allow you in. And I'll allow you to come to heaven. And I'll allow you to be with me. Nor does he reject him and say, mate, you have done way too much bad stuff. No chance you're ever coming in. No, no, no. Verse 43 and amazing words, he speaks to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, this is what faith is. This is what it is to be a Christian. This is what our hope is in. It's reaching out and saying, I don't have anything to offer. I know I've done wrong. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm asking you and I'm trusting you, even though I've got nothing to bring, even though I've got nothing to offer. And even if I did, knowing it would never be good enough, despite all of that, please, Jesus, Remember me. See, Christianity is not about what you earn. It's about what you are given. And the breathtaking promise to this criminal, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus looked on him, saw his faith, and invited him into an eternal relationship with God. And this is why this is a picture of hope. Hope beyond the grave. You see, Jesus dies on that cross. He doesn't come down. He gets buried in a tomb. And that really should be the end of the story, except it wasn't. Flick over to Luke chapter 24, verse 1. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. You see, this is our hope. Death is not the end, for Jesus has risen. He's not dead anymore. And this is the central claim of Christianity. We have a hope that will not die. Death is dead forever. In 270 BC, a Greek poet named Theocritus said, For the living there is hope, but for the dead there is none. For the living, while you're still alive, there's hope, but once you're dead, that's it. But that claim has been demolished truly through the gospel. You see, Jesus was dead. He was robbed of any earthly hope. He was reduced to a lifeless corpse in a tomb. But then three days later, he rose to life, dealing death a mortal blow. And so that now all who believe in their heart and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord, that this resurrection is true, they're now born again into what the Bible calls a living hope. And it's a living hope because it's a hope for this earth and for the age to come. And we have a living hope because it really is this message that this world is not all there is. 
that death is not the end and that God has triumphed over the grave. So we don't need to rage against death anymore. We don't need to be happy with it, but we don't need to rage against death anymore because Jesus has beaten it. And so now we can turn to him and we can say, Jesus, remember me and he will, he says, I will remember you because I am the resurrection in the life and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. See, this is a picture of hope because it's also a picture of peace. See, later that day, after he's risen from the dead in the evening in a locked room in Jerusalem, where a group of Jesus' friends had gathered, Luke 24, verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you, peace to you. See, Jesus didn't only appear. That alone would have established the truth of the resurrection, but he also spoke. And he wanted to explain the implications of the resurrection. His first words to his friends were, peace to you. You see, the empty cross, the empty grave is also a picture of peace. Jesus came to offer peace first and foremost with God himself. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of the gospel message. You see, by peace, Jesus doesn't mean some kind of wishy-washy, vague feeling that everything's going to be okay, that kind of refuses to engage with reality. He means the kind of peace that really matters. A peace that replaces conflict, a peace that changes everything, a peace that is worth celebrating, a peace that is all about a relationship restored, a battle that once was raging which is now over, the kind of peace that brings people out onto the streets to celebrate, a bit like the picture we saw of VE Day, it was worth celebrating because war had been so horrendous and now peacetime has come and the victory has been won and this truly is something to celebrate. And here's the reality. You only truly understand the depths and the wonder of this peace and why it really is a reason to celebrate and why today really is a wonderful special day, Easter Sunday. You only truly see the amazing depth of it when you see that this is also a picture of justice as well. You see, we know there are things wrong with the world. Like We see evil all around us all the time. And when we see something that is wrong, something that is evil in the world, we, we want there to be justice. Whether it's big level atrocities or whether it's stuff that is just wrong, that's not right that that happens. Basically, every time you switch on the news, some of you work in jobs where you see this all the time. We see it around us and we want there to be justice. And the cross tells us that ultimately there is. See, Luke 23 verse 44 tells us that as Jesus hung on the cross, the whole land was covered in darkness. And every person standing there from Israel who would have been witness to the, to the crucifixion that day they would have known what spiritual darkness represented. It meant God's anger. It was a sign of God's justice. It was a declaration that God hates evil. The Bible calls sin. Anything that is, that is less than perfect is sin. It says God, it's a declaration that God hates evil, hates sin, and that he will do something about it. You see, the darkness above the cross does not just tell you that, that God's justice will come, but it also tells you what God's judgment is. Because God cares about what goes on in his world. And so one day, he will shut out of his world all those who do evil in his world. And Jesus himself pictured God's justice in terms of darkness. Matthew 25, verse 30, Jesus describes the place of judgment where those who choose to do evil, those who choose to reject God, 
will ultimately find themselves. He calls it a place of outer darkness. It's basically the understand the idea that if you reject God, you don't want God now, that's what you get for all eternity. No God. And he describes it as a place called outer darkness. He says in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place Jesus called hell. We don't talk about hell very much in the 21st century. It's kind of gone out of fashion. We feel uncomfortable and awkward talking about it. But hell is an eternal separation from God. It's an eternal darkness. And the darkness of the cross is a declaration that judgment has come and justice ultimately will be served. And on the one hand, that's really very, very good news. If you think about it for a moment, it's really good news to understand that God takes injustice seriously. So when we see atrocities and evil committed, whether it's war like we saw in that Vietnam photo or the atrocities of the Twin Towers or any other kind of thing at a big level or a small level, we can look to the cross and know that God will take care of it. He will deal with it. And that's good news to those who have been victims of evil because it will be dealt with. God sees and God cares. It's good news. But it's also actually quite sobering news. And actually, quite frankly, quite terrifying news as well, because we realize quickly that we're not only victims of sin, we're also practitioners of it as well. We're those who sin ourselves. We don't like the idea of sin in the 21st century modern world. It seems so archaic. It seems so old fashioned. But God's really clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin is anything less than perfection. And that's pretty much, well, exclusively egg every single one of us and the bible says that all have sinned face separation from god and actually those who were alive in jesus's time those who would have witnessed the crucifixion they could never forget that they face separation from god both in this life and in the one to come because in the temple which was the biggest building in jerusalem they had this big visual reminder of it there was an 80-foot-high curtain that was as thick as a man's hand that, hands that hung to show them this. On one side of the curtain, there was God who was present in all his power and his perfection. On the other side, there was us. And we were not able to go into the place where God dwelled. And this curtain was hanging there to say it's impossible for you to come into God's presence and enjoy life in his kingdom. You can't come in here and survive. You'd face death and darkness. Your sin keeps you out. And as Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn in two. God did what no human could do. He ripped open the no entry sign. And so now the presence of God is opened up. And so for all those who repent and put their trust in Jesus, the problem of our sin is dealt with. And we can now be welcomed into the presence of God and know peace with him. It's why Jesus, when he comes to visit his friends, his first words after the resurrection are peace to you. Because this is what's on offer. To live at peace is a wonderful thing. And that's what's on offer in the gospel. This is why Easter is truly good news. Because whether you realize it or not, the most important relationship you have is the one with God. He's your creator. He's your sustainer. He's the one who holds you together in the palm of his hand. He's the almighty, planet-making, star-controlling, universe-ruling God. And you don't want to be out of peace with him. You don't want to stay at war with him. You don't want to have to stand and face him one day as your enemy. So what a relief, 
What joy, what wonder, what amazement it is to hear Jesus say, peace to you. The battle is over. The relationship has been restored. You can now come into his presence, into the presence of God with no fear. The Bible tells us we can boldly approach the throne of grace. And this changes everything, both in this life and in the one to come. The guy who showed a picture earlier of the Pearl Harbor attacks, the guy, the Japanese pilot, his name sounds sadly too like an English swear word for me to, I don't want to mispronounce it. But he was the lead pilot in 1941 in the Pearl Harbor attacks. And it was the unprovoked attack, we know the story of Pearl Harbor on, on the US, that four years later resulted in the USA dropping atomic bombs on this pilot's country. And by the end of the war, this guy's story is he was disillusioned and he was a broken man. He was racked with guilt and with grief about the attack he had led that had led to deaths and then ultimately what had then the devastation that had been wreaked on his country. He felt responsible for it. He was absolutely destroyed. And then someone gave him a Bible and he read Luke's gospel. And the turning point, according to his testimony, was the moment where Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And in that moment... He became a follower of Jesus. This was a man who had proudly and mercilessly bombed the U.S. fleet, now spent his life telling people about Jesus and the forgiveness that Jesus can offer and the peace that he can bring. The words, peace to you, changed his life entirely. He went from a man who was racked with guilt and shame and condemnation and grief at what he'd done to knowing no more guilt no more shame, no more condemnation. No, despite what he had done, he stood there and recognized that as a result, what Jesus did on the cross for him, it was all gone. And so now, no more guilt, no more shame, no more condemnation, only hope and peace. First of all, peace with God. And because of peace with God, he could have peace with himself and then peace with others too. Here's the reality. There is no internal peace or horizontal peace with other people until we have vertical peace with God. You can be pursuing trying to sort yourself out and sort your own life out and sort relationship out with other people, but until you have that peace with God, none of the rest of it comes. But when you get peace with God, then peace comes in every other area of our lives too. You see, the resurrection changes everything. As soon as you accept the peace that Jesus offers, you can face the world with confidence because you're at peace with the one who owns the place. You've got, free, you've got free reign to go wherever you want, knowing that the one who owns it all and holds it all and is king over all, he is for you and he is well pleased with you because of Jesus. That gives you a confidence, not an arrogance, but a confidence that God who created all things and knows all things and has all power over all things, he is for me and he loves me and he is rejoicing over me with singing not because of anything I've done but because of what Jesus has done and my life is now hidden in Christ and wow that changes everything we can be confident about how we live we can be honest about ourselves when we mess up when we sin we don't need to try and ignore it or seek to hide it or try and work to excuse it we can front up and accept that we're wrong and flawed but know in Jesus nevertheless we're at peace with God you don't need to strive to gain peace with God anymore or try and earn peace with God anymore or try and maintain peace with God anymore. In fact, you don't really need to do anything. You just need to look to the risen Jesus and hear him say to you, peace to you. 
It means you can go into your day knowing that what you have, you cannot lose. And what you have is the most important thing in the world, peace with God. You're not arrogant about your achievements because Jesus still had to win you and give you peace with God, but it means also we're not crushed by your failings because you know it's Jesus that gives you peace with God and not your performance. This is a picture of peace. But what's more, we end with this, this is also a picture of promise too. Luke 24, just after he's come and said peace to you, in verse 46, he then says this, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. See, Jesus also promised those men and women gathered in that room on the evening of the first Easter Sunday that they would be clothed with power from on high. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, God himself. Through coming as Jesus, God had been present with people and soon through sending his spirit after the risen Jesus had ascended to heaven, he would remain present with his people and he still is. So the power, this is life changing, the power that made the paralyzed man walk. The power that healed a leper, that controlled a storm, that raised a dead girl to life, that raised a crucified man to life. The same power that conquered the grave, that power is with us and in us and available to us. Because God has come powerfully to be with us. And the implications of this are stunning and huge. It means you can change. It means that habit can change. It can be broken. It means you're no longer defined by who you once were in the past, but now clothed with power on high, made righteous by Jesus. Your life is now not defined by anything you have done or ever did do or ever will do, but by Jesus Christ. And you now have the power to walk into the victory of what that looks like. It means that that pattern of behavior can change. It means everything can change because the power of God who changes dead things and makes them alive, who changes things which are blind and opens their eyes who takes that which is lost and declares it found is alive and at work in you see Jesus changes us the moment we put our trust in him he changes us from dead to alive spiritually speaking but he's also continually changing us every single one of us from one degree of glory to the next and so to hear Jesus say peace to you is wonderfully freeing To know that Jesus is powerfully with you is wonderfully reassuring. Here is God, the God of the cross who lives beyond the cross. The God who cannot be beaten by death and who beckons us from beyond death and says to us, here's my offer, my peace with you and my power in you. That's the offer, my peace in you, my peace with you and my power in you. That's the offer of Easter. You can know joy today because this God of integrity who does as he says, this God who planned for us to know him, this God who faces reality, this God who gives us hope for this life and this next, the God of justice who took the punishment we deserve is also the God who offers us peace 
and the God who offers us a promise that I am with you and I am for you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you and I love you. And my death and resurrection is proof of this, proof of my power, proof of my authority, proof of my love. I will give you what you need. So what do you need this afternoon? What do you need? Do you need faith? Do you need forgiveness? Do you need a fresh revelation of who God is? Do you need peace? Do you need to be clothed with power? Do you need to know the God of the universe is for you? Do you need reconciliation with him or with others? Because whatever it is that you need, God's peace is with you and his power is for you.